together and then pray. Uh, just one one update. You guys probably heard if you haven't. Sorry, it's the first time. Actually, I just heard on the way over. Uh, Jeremy Morales was rushed to the hospital. He's at OHSU. Um, is it? It's not. You're not picking me up. Is that better? Okay. You can turn me up if you need to. Yeah, just look at him and just say louder. <laughs> um, he was rushed to the hospital, and so again, I don't know. How, I think it's severe, but again, I don't know how severe. Um, so I'm all open in praying for him, and then we'll look at Revelation chapter two. And by the way, uh, this TV is not on, so I don't know what the slides are like. All right, let's open in prayer. Lord, it doesn't take much for us to recall or at least to realize that we are but dust. And we thank you that you affirm and you remind us that you know that. You realize that. and You know how much we need you and how weak we are, though we often forget. And yet we also know that uh, everything is in your hands and that you are good. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen the minds and hearts of Jeremy's parents and family, that they would not be shaken, but uh, hold fast to truth in the midst of this trial. We do pray that you would give grace uh, to Jeremy and to the doctors that he would make it through, and, and not just make it through, but they would find some way of reversing this illness, or that he would not perish in his youth. Lord, we know that you have appointed the day that each one of us comes into this world and the day that we will leave it. And so um, and we trust in your plan. At the same time, Lord, just we ask for mercy because of how much we love that family. Uh, it, would be a, it would be a very severe blow to us. and So we, we, we plead for mercy um, while we can until... Until we know precisely what your will is. Um, so um, please help Jeremy. Give him the medical attention he needs. And Lord, help us now too, even as we look at your word, to, to understand it and to apply it rightly. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, uh, the words that I'd like to direct your attention to are found in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, chapters 2 and 3 are a very sobering section of Scripture because uh, they serve as a, as a sort of performance review on each of the seven churches in Asia Minor. And uh, people have very mixed emotions regarding performance reviews. Some people uh, are terrified of them. Uh, they hate them. Uh, others, uh, they look forward to them uh, eagerly. Sometimes managers feel the same way. They, they either loathe giving them or they see the benefit, they appreciate them. Generally speaking, I would say we should value performance reviews, uh, even if they're negative. For Proverbs 12.1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. The point being that, that we should want to see where we're falling short. We should see, want to see where we need to be corrected. 
And again, what we have before us is really seven performance reviews, and they're public. This is made known not just to all the churches at that time, but all churches throughout history. And they're totally unbiased. And they're perfect, given the nature of the one who's making the judgment. We saw last week his qualifications. He's all-knowing, he's all-seeing, and he's perfect in his judgment, perfectly righteous. And these letters, again, are written to specific churches at a specific period in time. And at the same time, they have applications for us, uh, even that transcend history. So we can read them and we can learn from their weaknesses. We can derive principles that we can apply to ourselves, uh, seek to imitate their successes. And uh, I think that's as we look at this, I want to draw out those principles that even though they're written to a specific church, they have an application to us, just like any of the letters that Paul writes to the churches. We recognize those are written to Ephesus or they're written to Corinth or to the churches of Galatia. But we realize in reading them that the principles therein have application to us immediately as well. Uh, and so the same is true of these letters to these seven churches. Now, the performance reviews that they receive are really have the same basic structure. They start with an introduction. He gives some strengths. Uh, with Ephesus, he gives some weaknesses. He then adds another strength and then uh, reminds them of their future reward. So let's look, first of all, at the first few verses in the introduction. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Now, you'll notice, actually, in each of the introductions to the churches, he actually addresses an angel, which is a bit mysterious. Um, and scholars have you know, a lot of debate about what's this referring to. Some believe it's actually referring to uh, the church's pastor, um, because pastors would serve as a sort of messenger of God's word. And the word angel, angelos, means quite simply messenger. Angels are messengers of God. And so they believe this is just referring to the, the lead pastor there. The problem with this is the word angel in the rest of Revelation always refers to an angelic being. And so it would be a very odd use of that word, given the rest of the book and the rest of you know, how angels used in Scripture. Um, but why would God write letters to angels, angelic being? It's a valid question. If it's a reference to a literal angel, why are the messages actually directed to the members of the church? For instance, he calls these churches to repent. Well, you wouldn't ask an angel to repent. They're holy. What are they going to repent from? So the messages are clearly to the churches, but he addresses it initially to an angel. So clearly some angelic involvement is uh, going on around us. Because we, certainly we were aware that there are demons at work. Likewise, you would assume that there would be good angels also seeking to provide assistance to ministries. And we really have no way of pulling back the veil of the supernatural and the, and the natural and seeing what's going on. We're given no explanation. So it could be that there is a, an angel appointed to oversee the church in Hillsboro or Forest Grove or our church in particular. We don't know. Um, and even if we did, we'd have no way of interacting with it. Um, but it's also quite possible that the angel here is just uh, symbolic of the church itself. And so 
uh, as he's addressing the, the people in the church, he's actually um, addressing the churches as messengers within their region. That you are, as a church, you are a messenger, so to speak, of God's word in the region in which you serve. That's also possible, that it's just a symbolic. So we really don't know, but at the end of the day, it's not really that important. You don't want to base a doctrine of angelology on these references, though they're certainly worth looking at. And at the same time, there's really no way of drawing much application from it. Because we do know what they're written to ultimately is the people in the church, and that's how we need to examine it. The introductions also um, serve as a theological introduction to the rest of the letters. What The way Christ introduces himself uh, ties into what he says later on to that church. He, as you recall here, uh, he describes himself as holding the seven stars in his right hand. And you'll recall that the seven stars are representative of the seven angels. The seven lampstands are the seven churches that those angels uh, were responsible for. We see that in uh, chapter 1, verse 20. And the, and the right hand is emblematic of power, you'll recall. And Christ walking in the midst of the lampstands uh, demonstrates his immediate presence with them. He, he wants to remind the church of Ephesus here that he is absolutely sovereign over everything that's happening. No surprises. Everything's going according to plan. And he's with them through it all. They're not alone. He's with them and he sees what's going on. He sees their hard work. He sees their faithfulness. But he also sees into the depths of their heart and where their heart is falling short. And that brings us to the strengths. What are they doing right? He says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not, and you found them to be false. And you have persevered, you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. So great commendations. The word toil there that he begins with originally actually meant to suffer or, or to, or to uh, cause weariness. So the point is that this church has labored to the point of exhaustion. They, they were not lazy. They were not indolent. They weren't seeking an easy life, knowing that fruitfulness, especially spiritual fruitfulness, comes at a cost. Now, this was not a church of spectators. It was a church of servants. Each member was willing to do its part in order to see the, the building up of the whole body of Christ. They, they took seriously what Paul said to them in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. He says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so they, they, they recognized they each had a part to play. They each needed to seek to pursue maturity in Christ so they could help the other members mature and the whole church would mature. They labored and toiled to the point of exhaustion. He also describes their perseverance. He commends their perseverance. The word there is hupomone. You might be familiar with it. It means quite literally to bear up under. 
to bear the weight. It means it's to not give up, to, to take the heat, to keep on plotting one step in front of the other. In fact, Paul says that the reasons Christians can rejoice in trials is because trials actually produce this perseverance. Right? Romans 5, 3. Not only this, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proving character, and proving character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. Right? In, in sports, frequently, most teams will do some sort of uh, end-of-practice endurance exercises, calisthenics or wind sprints. Now, nobody likes that. They don't look forward to it, but they, the, the players do it because they know it's important. Because if they, if they push their bodies to the point of exhaustion, then when they're put in a, in, a, in, a, in a game situation where everything counts upon their endurance, they can endure. Right? So they go through the trial so that they can endure. It's the same thing as Christians. And we need to recognize when God puts us through painful trials, it's not because he's punishing us. It's because he's teaching us perseverance. That we would endure when everyone else will give up and give in. And so not only if we have perseverance will we not give up, but we will rejoice. And we will even shine in the midst of that trial. And not surprisingly, Jesus used this word in his parable of the soils, describing it as uh, part of the, the soil that bears fruit. He says, but the seed and the good soil... These are the ones who've heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Right? The, the good soil, it's a, it's a, perseverance is a fruit of genuine faith. And it comes, fruitfulness comes from perseverance. It doesn't come from clever manipulative programs or new ideas. You, you can't just throw money at a tree and expect it to grow. Right? People can be easily inspired by watching a movie. Right? You want to stir them up to play hard on the, on the soccer field or, or to join the military. They can watch a movie and with, be full of romantic enthusiasm, but that's not what's going to keep them on the battlefield. That's not what's going to allow them to endure when the trial hits. Right? We can stir ourselves up by listening to an epic piece of music or even spiritually, you know, it, create some sort of enthusiasm with, with great spiritual songs. But that is not what's going to sustain us when the trials hit. What's going to sustain us is learning to endure in the midst of the trials. As God brings those trials along, persevering. And so we need to learn perseverance. And the church of Ephesus worked hard and persevered in their work. In particular, it says... They worked hard at keeping the church free from bad doctrine. He says, you cannot tolerate evil men. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles. And they're not, and you found them to be false. And you might recall that Paul wrote to the, or not wrote, but spoke to the elders of the church of Ephesus in Acts 20. 
It says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit had made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. It's the same church. So apparently they took that admonition very seriously, knowing this was going to happen. And it did happen. And the Lord saw how they responded, and that's why he commends them. They didn't give in to the pressure or the deceitfulness of the false teachers that crept into their midst. So they, they were unwilling to tolerate evil men, which is probably an, an allusion to church discipline. They weren't going to tolerate sin, unrepentant sin in their midst. That they, they were unafraid to hold people accountable to the Bible standard, to live in a manner that pleases him. Although everyone in the society around them, maybe even other churches, embrace these false teachers, embrace sexual immorality, deceit or greed in their practices, the church of Ephesus would not tolerate such evil. They wouldn't tolerate sin and they wouldn't tolerate false teachers, it says. Uh, apparently there were actual teachers in the church who had come in and proclaimed to be men who had been appointed by God, actually sent by Christ to be Apostles. Quite likely these might have even been the same men that Paul had to address, or Paul addressed in his letters to Corinth, because there were some other apostles who were undermining what Paul would teach, which would suggest that they weren't genuine apostles. The Ephesians, however, didn't tolerate that nonsense. They didn't need Paul to write a lengthy Second Corinthians letter defending his apostleship. They just didn't buy into their claims. Instead, they put those teachers to the test. But it says, well, how did they do that? They compared what they were teaching with what God's word said. Is this consistent with Scripture? So they didn't allow their ears to be tickled or their pride to be flattered. They tested what these men said on the anvil of Scripture, and they found that it was false. The word false there is pseudo. Right? They weren't real apostles. They were false teachers. So, so the, 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 the church at Ephesus were like full of theological stalwarts. I mean, these were battle-scarred Christians. Theologically tough and discerning. I mean, you look at them and you think, this, this is the ideal church. Right? They're not. Despite all their incredible strengths and successes, Jesus has one of the sharpest criticisms for them. So so sharp is this rebuke that he tells them in verse 5 that unless they repent, he will remove their lampstand. What he means by that is he he will take away his grace from them. They will no longer have an effective witness in the world. They will just be a shell of a church. Just... Just a bunch of warm bodies in a building. No spiritual influence, period. So what would, what would such a strong and faithful church get wrong? 
I mean, what would what would put them in such grave danger that the Lord would remove his lampstand, his light in that region? It says in verse 4, But I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Their, their, their grave danger was not false teachers. It wasn't the worldly culture around them. It wasn't hypocrisy or self-righteousness that had crept in. It wasn't legalism or licentiousness. It was love. They left their first love. That refers to the, the love that they had at the beginning when they first came to know Christ. So how, how did they... How do they lose it? How does, a, how does a person lose their first love? The love they had at first. I think partly it's when we have such security in a relationship that we don't keep up maintenance in it. And over time, because we just know that relationship is secure, that, that person's never going to leave us or forsake us, we, we put all our weight in that security and over time, the lack of maintenance causes cracks and our love begins to leak out. Justin Martin in, in Men's Discipleship Group on Monday made a very astute comment uh, regarding this. He noted that after we attain our love, that, that is Christ, after we, after we receive Christ, like there's such security in that, knowing that, that our salvation is secure. That we begin to feel like because we're safe, because we are saved, that anything else that we do for the Lord is, is sort of like extra credit. We, we don't really need to do anything else because we're saved. So anything else we do is just, you know, a merit badge, a little benefit for us. We forget that loving God with all our being is actually the primary goal. The goal is not just to become born again. That's just the beginning. The goal is you know, perfect righteousness, complete righteousness, complete maturity in Christ. Like, when we get saved, it's just entrance. It's not the end. And we forget that loving God is the goal. Not Again, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, all our strength, that's the goal. That's what it should look like. It's, that's the goal. It's not doing little things that help towards that goal. Again, something that happens in this is we begin to focus on just the smaller battles that we've rightly chosen to fight because they help us towards that end. But over time, we forget why we're fighting those battles. We're fighting so hard and so focused, we forget what we're fighting for. Why do we choose to homeschool our children? Why do we choose to go to church? Why do we choose to get up every day? And it just becomes about doing it rather than we forget the whole purpose. It's just work. It feels like a chore. It feels like extra credit. In fact, if we don't do it, we're going to be okay. And we will be. He won't leave us. But we forget what we, what we were saved for. Well, what do we do when we realize this has happened? He says in verse 5, well, remember from where you have fallen. 
Well, what would remembering from where you had fallen look like here? He says, repent and do the deeds you did at first. So what is returning, repenting to the love that you had at first look like? Well, again, it means doing what you did when you first fell in love. So what does a person do when they, when they first fall in love? What is that behavior like? Just consider that in your own life. When you first fell in love with your spouse. If you're not married, when you first fell in love with a girlfriend or a boyfriend or even a hobby. When When you saw your child for the first time. How did you behave? And again here, the focus is not so much on the emotion that's experienced, but what you did. Right? In Scripture, emotion is critical. It's part of the reality. But it's subsidiary to action, right? Love is primarily expressed in the Bible by what one does. And that's the case here. Right? Do the deeds you did at first. And so the call to repent is to do loving deeds, the same deeds that you did before. So what, what does it look like? Well, here's some of the things I thought of. I, lo- I just examined what was my life like when I first met my wife? How did I... How did I act? And I thought about her, and then I thought about when I first became saved. When I, when I first fell in love with Julie, I, I looked for every opportunity to spend time with her. I would drive three hours to spend just you know, one or two hours with her. It would be three hours there, three hours back, because we lived three hours apart. And I, would, and, and, we, and, I, and I scheduled that time, and I guarded that time, even though I was... Taking, I was a full-time student in graduate work in a very difficult seminary. This was just high priority to me. And before we even started dating, when I met her, I would put myself in paths where we would cross one another so that we could have a chance to talk. In fact, I did that so many times she thought it was weird and chased her away until the Lord changed her heart. And so one of the things you do is you eagerly pursue time with the person you love. Like it's just natural. Secondly, your mind is preoccupied with the person you love. You're thinking about them all the time. What do, what do they like? What do they want? You're, you're asking questions. You're thinking about how can I get to know them better? You want to know their aspirations, their fears, their strengths, their weaknesses. You talk about the one you love. And you, and you, you talk to other people about how can I improve this relationship? How can I win this person's heart? What advice do you have? In fact, you just can't t- help but talk about the person you're in love with. There, 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 there's a seriousness in the pursuit. And this, this is like one of the most obvious. It's serious versus just casual and flippant because nobody ever falls in love casually. <laughs> what would that look like? Doesn't make any sense. You want to be the best. You want to capture the person's heart because you want to stand out above the rest. Right? Because somebody else is going to get her heart if it's not you or his heart. So there was, for me, there was a fear of doing anything that would displease her lest she decide, eh, he's not worth my time and I'm going to give my heart to another. Like, I wanted to know how can I fix my life in such a way that I don't do anything that would offend her. 
There's a desire to give and to sacrifice, to risk. Right? I would spend money to take her on dates to these nice restaurants. You know, again, spend time in these long commutes. I mean, I spent, in fact, I, I literally I spent my, my first six months wages on, I <laughs> didn't make a lot of money, but all that money, about the first six months of working, all went to buy her wedding ring. None of it went to myself because she was that valuable to me. And consider that when, again, when a person falls in love, like, mediocrity is not an option. You, you don't want, you're not half-hearted. I mean, that would be, again, nonsensical. Right? Nobody half-heartedly falls in love. Yeah, kind of like them, but I'm okay. They find somebody else. But that, that, that doesn't fit the definition. Right? God didn't half-heartedly give up his son. Jesus didn't half-heartedly go to the cross. Right? The, the, the very essence of love demands zeal, commitment, focus, energy. And I also, again, not only did I think about this in application of my relationship with my wife when we first met, but I thought about it in relationship when I first got saved. It, it, when I first got saved, there, that, that was like the one grabbing thing in my life. I wanted to know I could live in a way that would please God. Now, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. And so it looked a bit different, but there was an eagerness even to go to these, frankly, rather stale catechism classes taught by these nuns. And I just, I just wanted to learn. Teach me everything I can to know about following Christ. I, I, there was an eager desire to serve as an altar boy. I became an altar boy as soon as I can, could. I played in trumpet as a, as a middle school student in the, in the Catholic Church worship team. I remember even as a fourth and fifth grader, just being constantly concerned about every, anything I do would honor Christ. In fact, the kids on the school bus one day were singing a song, well-known song, Stand By Me. Famous, good song, clean song. But I didn't know what the lyrics meant. And I was concerned if I sang that song, I might somehow be dishonoring Christ. It's a very good song, in fact. But there was just a fear that I can't participate in this. And I was fifth grade. Every evil thought that I had that would come across my mind, I'd be so convicted. If it was an angry thought against my, my brother or my sister, or if it was just arrogance, whatever came into my mind, I would respond with confession. But being a Catholic would also be not just confessing the sin to God, it would be saying five or ten Hail Marys, however much I thought I needed to say. Do some sort of work to make up for my sin. And even as I grew, I wanted to take every opportunity to grow in my understanding with God. If there was some sort of conference or a, or, or a camp or a retreat that I could go to, I, want, I, I didn't want to miss it. In fact, I would consistently, in fact, I would even say maybe even to this day when a retreat is over, I would go through a depression for like three or four days. Because you just miss it. That, that time alone with the Lord. And that was true so early on. I had an insatiable thirst to learn about Christ. Even when I was in high school, I attended five different churches, uh, four different, uh, four different churches, five different services, because again, there was just this desire to learn. I had no discernment. I mean, the churches that we're going to weren't very good, but there was a zeal. I just wanted to know God. 
In fact, I discovered in all these churches that the teaching was so bad, I just wanted to go to a church that taught the Bible. And so I did, and that's where I really started to grow. So that's what it looked like for me at first. I mean, and again, hopefully as I'm sharing these things, maybe some of it resonates with, with you when you first came to know the Lord. So what would repentance look like? Returning to the first love? Well, again, first and foremost, it means just remembering that the goal is to love God with all your being. It's not just to get saved. It's to love God with all your being, with your affections, with your thoughts, with your actions, to be like Christ. It's the person of God that matters, not just obedience to God, loving him. I love what George Mueller said in this regard. He wrote this late in life. He says, according to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. This has been my firm and settled condition for the last five and thirty years. For the first four years after my conversion, I I knew not its vast importance. But now, after much experience, I specially commend this point to the notice of my younger brethren and sisters in Christ. The secret of all true effectual service is joy in God having experimental acquaintance and fellowship with God himself. That's what we're called to, brothers and sisters. Not just work. Work is good, but the work is for an end. It's that we would love him. God doesn't want our service as much as he wants our hearts. Just imagine a wife. Maybe she's struggling with loneliness, discouragement. She comes to her husband and says, can I have... Kind of a hug and a kiss. Can you tell me, can you remind me that you love me? And he responds to her and says, okay, I'll do that because you need it. Because you you have this this weakness. You you need my help. You you need me to affirm your morale. So I'll do so. I'll kiss you because you have a need. And that that would be insulting. That would be insulting beyond belief because it wouldn't show any love at all. It would just show that you're a burden. You just need, you're doing work for her. But this is how many people think of their service to the Lord. Right? A kiss. A kiss without care isn't a kiss. It's an insult. And there's biblical proof of that. Judas kissed Christ. This is one of the gravest insults ever. God doesn't need us. When he says he wants our heart, it's not because he's lonely. It's not because he's needy. It's because he loves us. And he wants us to love him. And the same is true of marriages. 
Right? That's how we should treat one another because we love one another. Like Christ loves the church. God wants our hearts. When loving actions feel like extra credit, just chores to be performed, work, we're just, we're just doing it because we're trying to be faithful, that's a problem. We've lost, we fell and fallen from our first love. So what do we do when we realize we don't love God like this or even, even our spouses? I think repentance begins by owning up to the fact that you are an arrogant, self-centered, hard-hearted person. If you have fallen from your first love, that's the problem. It's not your spouse. It's you. You're a Judas. If that's how you see God, realizing we need to realize that passionately devoting ourselves to our love is not extra credit. It's our calling. God, again, doesn't want our work. He wants our heart. So we confess and then we do what we did at first. We eagerly spend time with our love. We allow our mind to be preoccupied with our love. We think about God throughout the day. We pursue love with seriousness, like we care that it matters, that it could be lost. Now we know it won't be lost, but all the more reason why we should devote ourselves. If He would never leave us or forsake us, why do we forsake Him? And we should look for opportunities to give, to sacrifice, to risk, because we love Paul doesn't end with this. He, he, he gives another, not Paul, but, but Jesus, he gives another strength. I think it's interesting that Jesus uses the sandwich technique of providing feedback. He gives commendation, then criticisms, but he then gives commendation because he knows, he knows this is going to get to their heart. He knows this could just be crushing. He reminds them, I know it's not all bad. This you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Really, his commendation here is just an extension of what he had said in verse 2. But he's specifying the false teaching that they didn't give into. It's the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't know much about the Nicolaitans. We don't know what they taught, but it was bad enough to warrant being specifically called out in two of the churches. The other references in uh, the church of Pergamum in verses 15 through 16 of this same chapter. And it compares the Nicolaitans with the teaching of Balaam, which included idolatry and sexual immorality. Early church writers tell us different things about who the Nicolaitans might have been. But again, they, they don't always agree. Because we don't really get any more specifics, I think... Paul's earlier words to the Ephesians are appropriate when he says it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. He didn't need to call out the specific things they promoted. They knew what the Nicolaitans taught. He just left it at that. So we're not going to go into speculations as to their error. But just to recognize that God 
God sees the false teachings that were taking place. He saw what was happening in, in the church. And he knows those who are compromising and those who are proving faithful. And so he concludes with this final call to endurance. With the promise of a future reward. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now we need to first note that the reward that's offered here is only for those who overcome. That's a key word. It'll come up again and again. And it's, the root of that word is where we get the word Nike, the shoe brand. It means victory, to, to conquer, to prevail. And I actually love the correspondence with Nike because Nike, of course, is known for its, its shoe technology and running races and competitions. Right? It reminds us that we're in a spiritual race and we're in a spiritual race to win. Right? Just like we're not content to let somebody else win our love away from us. We want to attain our love. We know only one gets the prize, and so we're going to run to win to get that prize. And of course, the prize here is God. Right? It's not a girl. It's not glory. It's not gold. It, it, it's the greatest prize imaginable. And in fact, even the reward that God offers here to eat of the tree of the life in paradise is about being with God. Like that's what he's offering. He's offering himself. You can be with me for eternity. Right? And, and such a reward isn't going to be alluring to one who doesn't love God. Right? And, and, and the reason we need to persevere, the reason we need to pursue victory with all our heart is, again, because we love God. It's because we love God. Not because we're trying to outdo another person. Ultimately, it's because we love him. Right? The reason you try to outdo one, another person to win your spouse's heart isn't so much because you're just trying to outdo the other person. It's because you love that person you want to be your spouse. It's because of love. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, Do you not know that all the runners in a stadium compete, but only one receives the prize? So run to win. Each competitor must exercise self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run uncertainly or box like one who hits only the air. Instead, I subdue my body and make it my slave, so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. What would he be disqualified from? The prize. God. He wants to please God. He wants God's heart. So he runs in order to keep it. Father, we want to be a similar people. We don't want to loiter on our heavenly journey. And so I pray that you'd stir us up. Lord, reminding us of the deeds that we did at first. Lord, that we would be wholeheartedly devoted to you. That we would love you with all our heart and that we would even return to the love we had at first with our, with our spouses, with our kids. Lord, in all the relationships we have, when, we just, when there was the excitement of newness and, and joy in the relationship. But Lord, we ultimately know that all earthly love is an overflow of your love for us. 
So pour out your spirit into our hearts that we would be a fountain of love for you and for one another. So that we would not fall and lose our first love. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.